0: i'm recording so why don't we uh, launch oh, into I it monetize high. some of this chatter
1: now see that the key to actually doing that is to just do it but not announce it because once again you've spooked me so now, like, now there's this implicit pressure to be in character. What
0: a delicate little flower this man is. Uh, so we are recording separately. We are at our respective abodes because my unfortunate co-host, suffering the travails of Job, uh, is stricken with the novel coronavirus.
1: That's right. I have the... I mean, is is it still the novel coronavirus, folks? I think it's not so novel at this point. Uh, I caught... Yeah, I was feeling really tired last week, just like devastatingly just fatigued out of it. And um, yeah, tested positive for COVID. There's a new variant going around. I think it's called Ares. pharmacist I spoke to says lots of people are getting it. So my, my story, though, harrowing is not unique. Um, anyway, yeah, I've been in quarantine for... <laughs> I don't. Know, I haven't left my house in like five days. It sucks. My girlfriend has it too.
0: And to be clear, this is your first time having it.
1: Yeah, so it's it's novel for me.
0: I uh, actually have a bit of a COVID. It's not a story. It's not even interesting. Uh, I have a COVID experience this week. I got my booster shot on uh, Wednesday, I think the same day that you were diagnosed. <laughs> and I think it was my fifth, you know, got it as something to do it was great recapturing 2021 memories
1: recapturing all those fun memories all of us have of like standing in like a mall parking lot six feet away from total strangers wearing a mask and then yeah getting injected with something that makes you feel sick for two days
0: yeah and that's exactly what happened might as well have just had the disease uh, <laughs> if dr fauci were here right now i'd give him a sock in the jaw no i'm, I'm just kidding folks you should you should get your booster shots it's very important. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we we kid here. Both of us missed uh, the Chapo Trap show. Chapo was doing their first live show in Canada ever at the Danforth Music Hall. And the Michael and us boys were a no-show. So I don't know. I'm sure that was fun. I heard they roasted like... Joe Warmington and John Kay and you know, uh, it's too bad we weren't there to see it.
0: But shortly before your diagnosis we did watch a movie that we'll get to talk oh, about God. in this episode that I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure we'll take the sting off missing that event that you looked forward to so much that you at least got to watch a great movie with your friend. Welcome to Smodcast, folks. I'm Will <laughs> Sloan here as always with
1: <laughs> uh, Kevin Smith. That's right. It's Luke Savage, everyone. Uh,
0: before we get to the movie uh, I want to follow up a thread of a discussion that we had on a previous episode which is I did watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary that's on Netflix oh I've,
1: I I finished watching it too that's one of the things you I've done in quarantine three, the... I watched the politics one. Oh, oh I'm so excited to talk to you about it because <laughs> the whole like first two episodes
0: they keep foreshadowing the politics by having you know James Cameron or whoever the talking head is say well who could have guessed that uh, the greatest role uh, was going to be in a whole different realm you know he <laughs> his biggest stardom was gonna be as etc. I just want to say I, st- I still think despite all that, the Terminator is probably his greatest role.
1: <laughs> yeah, Terminator, True Lies, the movies that he's known for, also maybe even being Mr. Universe as well. The kind of obvious thing that you would say about Arnold Schwarzenegger, the received wisdom is
0: like, you really got to hand it to this guy. Incredible what he accomplished. A poor kid from Austria with the name Schwarzenegger conquers three separate realms. A guy with that last name becomes the biggest movie star in the world, becomes the governor of California. But having watched this documentary, I do think becoming governor of california was the least impressive feat oh yeah he really had to work to be mr universe but he just sort of coasted into being governor and then when he got into office i mean this is what i thought was so funny he apparently didn't know what the job was (laughs) (laughs) if i were gray davis i wouldn't be as chill about it as i appeared in in my talking head interviews i would probably be a little bitter yeah, according to the documentary, Arnold was hemming and hawing about throwing his hat in the ring, basically up until he went on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno to announce. And he joined the recall election partly because it was like a two-month campaign, so he figured, well, I can uh, I can beat the press to any untidiness. Turns out the LA Times got the scoop anyway. You know, I, I was sort of dreading the politics episode because, you know, I I like Arnold, you like Arnold. I don't want to hear all about how he's a Republican. But I thought it was funny that when he gets into office, you know, he basically seems to have no idea what a Republican is or at least that's how it's presented in this rather hagiographic documentary like he likes ronald reagan because reagan has positive vibes and he likes america because a guy like him could succeed in america so he doesn't want to hear all about that vietnam shit and so then when he gets into office clearly there were a lot of people around him who were like this is a great opportunity a republican governor in california and then after a year of trying to push through deeply unpopular republican policies in a deep blue state he just be He becomes a Democrat, basically. That's his trajectory.
1: (laughs) He has a big lib pivot, and then he gets really into environmental stuff. By the way, fun cameo from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who appears by his side in one scene. He talks a lot about how, uh, you know, he did what no one else thought could be done, and he brought Republicans and Democrats together uh, and stuff like that. And so it ends up actually just having all the same sort of dumb guy platitudes that the rest of the documentary has. And um, yeah, I didn't mind it at all. I have to say, I was I was there. I mean in the sense that I was alive at the time of his run for California governor and I I forgot that the LA Times uh reported on you know that there was a groping scandal right before election day and I also forgot He hadn't had to do a primary campaign. And uh, that sequence was pretty funny because I guess just like multiple celebrities ran, like Gary Coleman was a candidate. Uh, There's a scene where he's on stage debating Ariana Huffington, who does not seem to like Arnold at all. One thing I kind of appreciated about the documentary and about like Arnold's own discussions of that time was just like he talks about it all as a performance and even talks about how, yeah, before going into the debate, I had some of my like comedian friends... Like write me jokes or whatever. Like I had writers like come up with zingers to throw back at my opponents. And so at one point he says to Ariana Huffington, "I just thought of a great part for you in Terminator 4 or something." You know, haha <laughs> laughter. And I don't know, watching this, it really did strike me that the Trump thing wasn't new. The idea of, you know, a major electorate, in this case, California, just embracing a politics of pure artifice. And of course, Arnold himself talks about, you know, Reagan having done it before him en route to the same job. So, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, the characters are different. The character Reagan was playing was different than the one Arnold was playing. The one Arnold was playing was different than the one Trump plays. But I mean, the idea of, you know, just artifice and personality and and characters, you know, consuming the political political realm you know it's it's clearly not new and i don't know um many ways i think people have been a little bit precious about how exceptional the whole trump thing is is in pretending that he kind of invented that or that he represents some kind of crossing of the rubicon doesn't really seem that way i think you know the politics of personality have been, you know, a dominant strain in American politics for a long time. I think basically the whole of not just American politics, but much of modern electoral politics for several decades have been uniformly about personality, or at least that's been one of the dominant strains. And the degrees of difference usually just have to do with, you know, whether somebody takes a conventional political route to get there and whether they at least nominally have some kind of command of public policy. So, you know, whether it's like Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, who, you know, were both among other things, terrific actors, or whether it's like, you know, Arnold or Trump, uh, guys who, you know, basically know absolutely nothing about public policy and are just like coasting on their personality. I mean, I know which of those two personalities I think is more compelling. But you know, there we are. I also know which one is funnier.
0: Obviously, one similarity between Trump and Schwarzenegger is, you know, the love of kayfabe, the love of performance. But Schwarzenegger is so much more kind of analytical, eager to sort of break the kayfabe or talk about the kayfabe call attention to the kayfabe trump would never have a scene like the one in pumping iron where schwarzenegger explicitly talks about oh i love planting phony advices <laughs> And Trump also wouldn't have a scene like the one in this new documentary where Schwarzenegger talks about working with comedy writers to come up with zingers. Trump never breaks the kayfabe. I mean, Trump's obviously aware of the performance, but he never does a post-mortem on it, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure Trump has another level. He's come out the other side and he's just like, he is just the character that he plays on TV, I think. I mean, I don't, I don't know how one can even differentiate. Uh, incidentally, I've been watching his rallies Uh, the first Republican debate is going to be on Tuesday and apparently Trump is going to skip it and uh, do an interview with Tucker Carlson instead I'm not sure if that's at the same time I think it's an error on his part I think that he should have held a rally at the same time just to fuck with them Anyway, in just a kind of sick way And because it's my job I am looking forward to the uh, the first Republican debate It's going to be funny to watch these losers Get up there and pretend like uh, There's some kind of competition going on um, And the New York Times got Like a leaked memo from the DeSantis campaign Outlining their debate strategy Which, you know, I suppose they may change this Now that it's been leaked But apparently the strategy was going to be uh, Defend Trump aggressively While going after Vivek Ramaswamy <laughs> So I don't know like, like the calculation presumably being like he needs to show a pugilist streak while also not offending the honor of God Emperor Trump, uh, which I just think, I mean, whatever DeSantis does, he's at this point, he's going to look like a loser. Actually, I had a DeSantis item I wanted to uh, bring to the table.
0: Funny that he wants to go after Vivek since that's where so much of the energy of the sort of 2% donor class of the party is going to.
1: Well, at this point, you know, he and Vivek are, are you know, fighting it out for who can bring into the low double digits. So I guess it kind of <laughs> makes sense. Anyway, there was a piece that uh, tickled me in the Washington Post uh, style section by Ben Terrace. Awkward Americans see themselves in Ron DeSantis. Uh, did did, <laughs> did you did you see this article, Will?
0: Well, I mean, a cliche thing to say is that sounds like an Onion headline, <laughs> but I guess it's not.
1: <laughs> well, I think Ben Terrace, who put this together, absolutely knows what he's doing. And that's why I liked this article. It uh, begins, after watching Awkward, awkward videos of Ron DeSantis, Derek Guy had a horrifying realization. Guy, a fashion writer known as the menswear guy to his large following on social media, had noticed people on X, formerly known as Twitter, making fun of the Florida governor and Republican presidential hopeful for throwing off weird vibes on the campaign trail. Some of these moments have been captured on video, as things tend to be during a presidential campaign. DeSantis struggling to make small talk with voters, bursting into strange paroxysms of wide-mouthed laughter, appearing to sugar- a child drinking an iced tea at an Iowa fair. What's your name? DeSantis asked a voter in a recent clip from a New Hampshire dinner. Tim, the man responds, okay, says DeSantis. In another video... <laughs> (laughs) In another video, uh, from a party after the Iowa GOP's Lincoln dinner, DeSantis stands ramrod straight, taking gulps of beer and checking the time on his phone and telling potential voters that normally he would already be asleep. As he sought to connect with voters and donors, critics say DeSantis has resembled, to quote a couple of posts, a robot put together from scrapped spare parts from Disney's The Hall of Presidents or an extraterrestrial in a skin suit trying to learn to be human. But when Guy, the menswear writer, watched a video of DeSantis cycling, through four different facial expressions in about three seconds during a news conference he saw something even more disturbing oh god he remembers saying to himself that's me the governor's anti charisma his apparent struggles to make small talk his propensity for letting a smile fall too quickly from his face reminded guy of himself at parties or the time he had no idea what to say after a fan of his fashion writing recognized him at a tailoring shop. Um, anyway. God, sorry.
0: I identify with that too, actually. Maybe he's my guy.
1: <laughs> I just think the conceit of this article, like turning Ron DeSantis, like the fucking neo-fascist governor of Florida, into like the un- an unlikely hero of uh, shy and awkward and antisocial Americans. I find that darkly funny. And, you know, most of these people, if not all of them, are quick to say, you know, yeah, I see myself in him, but the guy's also repugnant. So, uh, so fuck him. (laughs) Um, I I do think the whole DeSantis thing is a really interesting case study in how bad it's possible to be at retail politics, you know, still make it to something like the governorship of Florida, which is not a small thing. I mean, one person who comes to mind, uh, who I think is is probably the most superlative case study in this regard, would be Michael Bloomberg, who, you know, multi-term mayor of New York City, who basically appeared in two Democratic debates and was just like so unable to master like basic debate etiquette, even just like turning on a tap of unlimited money was not enough to win him any significant amount of delegates. I mean, I think he he picked up one or two in American Samoa or something like that. But there the explanations clear, right? Michael Bloomberg has so much money that he's just been able to kind of bypass, you know, a lot of the normal routes to something like being mayor of New York, you know, which usually do involve, you know, shaking some hands, talking to some people, you know, having at least some kind of basic charm or at the very least not appearing to people like you're an absolute freak. DeSantis radiates just this absolute weirdness. I mean, Bloomberg is unlikable in, I think, a different way. DeSantis is just such a weird person. I mean, it's right there in this uh, Ben Terrace article. I mean, this thing that he does with his face where he, he cycles through multiple expressions or a smile or a laugh is something that he seems to activate. I and mean, we were talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, politics being a performance. I mean, this is a guy who is unable to sort of make the performance look at all natural. And it's incredible to think that, you know, in spite of that, he was able to get elected uh, governor of Florida, although I guess it was uh, it was pretty narrow in 2018. And then in 2022, he won this big reelection. Um, but I would be remiss not to point out that the Democrats did run a former Republican governor against him. And maybe that had something to do with why they lost. Anyway, it is going to be fun to watch the debate. I'm genuinely looking forward to it. Trump's rallies, I mean, they they are much as uh, you'd expect. I do think every time I watch one that, honestly, the media after Trump was elected president up to this day, networks like MSNBC are just doing stuff about how you know dangerous and scary and bad Trump is all the time. But I feel like the media sort of decided after 2016, like he won the presidency because we were broadcasting his rallies. So we're not going to do that anymore, except in these like chopped up little clips. And because of that, I feel like people, you know, if you haven't watched one of these things for a few years. You know, you sit and watch one, like the clips that you might see on Twitter or something do not adequately convey just how completely unhinged and weird these rallies are. His way of speaking is so bizarre. I mean, he maintains a very high level of energy, but there's just like constant little digressions. There's all kinds of little Easter eggs where I feel like you only get the reference if you're like a real head and you've already watched like a hundred Trump rallies, like all these minor characters that he brings up. There's a whole cosm- ology. It is striking that he's basically running the same campaign that he ran in 2016. I mean, there's some ugly right-wing culture war stuff thrown in, you know, that's sort of been updated to sort of present-day sensibilities. He's doubling down on some of the stuff from his first campaign, illegal immigration from Mexico, that kind of thing. But the whole narrative is the same as 2016, like the underlying narrative that he's an insurgent, he's a different kind of Republican. He loves talking about trade. So that was one of the big, I mean, that's what I think really allowed him to win the Electoral College in 2016 and uh, talking about the criminality of his opponent. <laughs> so going into the next election, I mean, not only can we look forward to a rehashing of the Trump-Biden 2020 matchup, or almost certainly that's what is ahead of us. Uh, but in many ways, I think it's just going to be a rematch of the Trump-Hillary campaign, at least from Trump's end. Uh, what Joe Biden and the Democrats do, the kind of campaign they're going to run, absolutely no idea. Maybe it'll be better than Hillary's 2016 campaign, but uh, honestly, with the Democrats, who knows?
0: I can't catch my breath, man. Really? Should I try mouth stuff? What is this, a Tinder date? Get off of me. Oh,
1: shit. Mr. Dante! I need an ambulance at the quick stop!
0: Saved my life, man. Wish I had a life worth saving. What are you talking about? Sit around and watch the same movies over and over. I always thought you could have made a cool movie. You're right. I'm living on borrowed time. No more watching movies. I'm gonna make a movie! Well, a little context for this one. Uh after we recorded our last episode, Luke and I were, you know, on his balcony shooting the breeze and god knows how we started talking about Clerks 3. I think it's possibly because Kevin Smith and his life and art are never far from my mind. Uh <laughs> but I was describing this movie and longtime uh listeners uh will know that every now and then there are certain bad movies that like hit my brain like a silver bullet. And no amount of medical technicians can get it out.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: the Flash was one of them. Uh, Rifkin's Festival was another of them. <laughs> and Clerks 3, one of the most uniquely dispiriting movie-going experiences, I think, of my life, was one of them. And uh, Luke said, well, we should, we should watch that for the show. And I immediately thought, oh, God, Kevin has been with me all my life. Uh, <laughs> but you, I don't think I've ever seen Clerks Part 1. And I was sad that the well has been poisoned because listen kevin smith not somebody who i would make a case for being a good filmmaker but his 1994 independent debut clerks was a film that i certainly loved as a teenager and i watched it again within the last year in fact as preparation for going to see clerks three and um i was not expecting much and, and
1: you didn't get much either. <laughs> no, the the opposite.
0: I thought Clerks, his original movie, I thought, you know what? There's a reason that this movie not only hit, but also endured. Uh,
1: I'll take you off to take your word for it.
0: See, the well has been poisoned, and that breaks my heart, because I think it's a good movie. Clerks was released in 1994. It was the hit of the 1994 Sundance Film Festival. Kevin Smith made it when he was, I think, 22 or 23 years old. It was made for $27,000, which basically covered the cost of film stock, I think. He shot it at the actual convenience store where he worked, and it chronicles a day in the life of two aimless convenience store clerks in their early 20s. And watching it again... There are certain elements of it that have dated. I mean, it was made by a man in his early 20s in the, you know, 1990s. But there are certain elements, I think, that still hold up. Specifically, the way that it captures something of a certain postgraduate malaise, a certain, um, let's call it quarter-life crisis. The feeling of, you know, not knowing what to do with your life and feeling a lot of possibilities receding, but also a sort of feeling of coming to terms with what adult life actually is. A feeling that adult life isn't necessarily going to be a fantasy. It's going to be... So I was, I was actually quite moved by Clerks watching it again, in addition to finding it, you know, very funny. It's also the only movie where Kevin Smith's dogged amateurishness translated into a style. It looks kind of like a photocopied zine of the era but as a movie and i mean you know it was a movie that was hugely successful among critics captured something of the gen x generation it was the right movie at the right time and it led to a long career Now. Clerks (laughs) 3.
1: Yeah, but yeah, just incidentally, Um, I mean, Clerks means nothing to me, but we did not watch Clerks 1. We did not even watch Clerks 1. We watched Clerks 3, which if Clerks 1 means nothing to me, Clerks 3 is just like in another galaxy of self-reference. And like this movie not only did not resonate with me at all, uh, I found it to be one of the most kind of unpleasant viewing experiences that that we've had uh, of late. And this is... (laughs) (laughs) you know, this is coming in a season of the show where we've watched The Sound of Freedom and The Flash. So I don't use my words lightly.
0: Yeah, this movie is like breathing car exhaust for two hours. It is deeply dispiriting. There's nothing to look at and what it's saying. I think one reason why we wanted to talk about this movie is because we've been talking about some movies lately, like The Flash, that seem to represent something of a rot in culture. And those movies we've talked about tend to be, you know, big budget IP movies. And then you've got this movie, which (laughs) is, whatever else you say about it, it is a homegrown work. It has a beating heart in it. It was made by a human being. Personal is a Jonas Mekas diary film. (laughs) And what it's saying is incredibly dispiriting. And in fact, this movie feels like a little tick on the side of that huge rot that we're feeling in culture.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you know what yeah. I mean? So I'm going to need Will to sort of take the lead on this film because I found it so unpleasant. And it's it's honestly, it's so self-referential that I, I actually struggled to like have any sense of what was going on. So I just want to give you all my basic feelings about it right from the get go. I mean, this movie is basically Gen X nerd culture frozen in amber. And, you know, the thing is that that formula, you know, an old thing out of time that can sometimes yield interesting results. The problem here is that the the universe and the subculture that Clerks depicts, uh, you know, nerdy twenty something video store guys whose nerdiness comes down to things like debating whether Greedo shot first or whatever, uh, you know, uh, talking about comic books, et cetera, et cetera. That's the whole of popular culture now <laughs> which was not the case
0: when clerks one came out by right. the way well, the famous scene exactly
1: from clerks one where they
0: where they debate the death star contractors that was novel at the time people had not heard something like that and now that's all right exactly
1: so this isn't like a subculture that's been preserved in amber and then you know it's still a subculture the universe of clerks even in this advanced stage of its existence, does not seem to grapple at all with the fact that all of us are now trapped inside of Ready Player One, basically. That that, that this nerd culture, or whatever you want to call it, is the whole of culture. The characters who are these kind of like fanboy archetypes Like, that's not an indie archetype anymore. This universe comes from a time when words like nerd or or geek or whatever might have actually referred to something at least kind of mildly outsider or subcultural. But that's past because that's just just everything now. And what's so astonishing about this film, coming to it as an outsider who doesn't really, you know, isn't really familiar with, I don't have Will's exotic knowledge of clerks, which watching anything, clerks with Will Sloan is a real privilege, let me tell you, because you uh, you get all of the footnotes. It's like watching with the commentary. (laughs) Watching it as an outsider, it just adds to just the uncanny weirdness of this thing where it's a bunch of guys in a New Jersey video store who have all the reference points of like Gen X guys in their 20s in the early 1990s and it's like barely updated. So they're still talking about Star Wars, but now they're talking about the Mandalorian and then there's a few sort of token references to NFTs and TikTok and wokeness thrown in. And uh yeah, unpleasant movie. Didn't like it, but I think it's gonna I think it's uh gonna be interesting to talk about. So uh with that, Will, uh I'm gonna hand it off to you. Well
0: the titular clerks are, of course, Dante and Randall, played by Brian o'halloran and Jeff Anderson. They were, you know, guys from New Jersey. Uh there are certain celebrities, you know, John Waters and Andy Warhol also come to mind who, through their fame, also brought up a lot of other people with them. So there's like a huge huge broad kevin smith universe of new jersey guys (laughs) who are sort of attached to his fame and these are two of them and actually before getting to the plot just a nice bit of writing from nick pinkerton's magisterial review of clerks three called talk is cheap the movie is grotesque and a little affecting, both qualities a product of Smith's dogged loyalty. This loyalty is evident in Smith's fidelity to his core cast of O'Halloran, Anderson, and Jason Mewes, none of whom have ever enjoyed any particular high-profile acting gigs outside of the Viewisk universe, unless you count Muse's cameo alongside Smith in 2000's Scream 3. Not exactly movie star types in 1994. They return here bearing all the marks of nearly three decades of being marred and mangled by life. Little of this covered up by the kind of cut-rate, nip-tuck jobs that real celebrities don't have to settle for. This is much of the film's unique appeal. You'll never see these kinds of roughed-up bridge-and-tunnel mugs on multiplex screens after Smith gets condemned to DTV purgatory, and that's a loss for cinema. I've never seen a whole movie set in a convenience store before. Right? Thank you. I'm gonna fill the script with all the weird me and Dante have ever said or seen around here over the years.
1: Oh, you should put in that stuff you used to say about the Death Star contractors.
0: Get sued by Disney? That. Besides, I want this movie to be about other movies. I want it to be about me. It's my flick, so I want to write about the things that I do. Well, the titular Clerks, of course, Dante and Randall, played by O'Halloran and Anderson, begin the movie much as we last saw them. They're still behind the counter at the quick stop, which, if memory serves, they bought at the end of Clerks 2. Still playing hockey on the roof. That's right, folks, the first of many callbacks. Many, many callbacks. The movie is all callback. Oh, and how could I forget there's also a third clerk, fan-favorite Elias, the Christian kid introduced in Clerks 2. A real mid-2000s kind of archetype. But a tremor hits the Quick Stop community early on, when Randall experiences a near-fatal heart attack. Kevin Smith scholars will know that this is autobiographical. Smith himself experienced a heart attack in 2018. And this leads to a moment of reflection for Randall. All his life, all 50 or so years, he sat behind the counter at the video store, which is now, by the way, a cannabis store, watching movies and making fun of them. But he's never, he's never created anything himself. By the way, you were mentioning Gen X before, and this is a real Gen X moment, isn't it? That kind of like David Foster wallace like end of irony, uh, whatever happened to sincerity kind of strain that runs through this movie. So Randall decides he's going to make a movie. He's going to make a movie about a day in the life of a convenience store. He's going to write what he knows. He's going to make a movie that is, for all intents and purposes, the 1994 Sundance hit Clerks. The second half of the movie is devoted to the filming of Randall's movie, which, scene by scene, is Clerks. All your favorites from the first movie are back. Not just your favorites, all of the secondary characters, all of the bit part players are back. All of the old New Jersey friends who populated the cast of Clerks return almost 30 years older. Beyond any sort of uh, ideological issues this movie raises, the first and most basic issue is that, I mean Clerks, the 1994 film, is, I mean if any film were a product of its time, if any movie were tied to one specific generation, it's that movie. And that's not something that this movie is keen to wrestle with. Oddly so. You'd think that Kevin Smith, he's a man who reads his own press. He's certainly aware of the fact that it's one of the Ur-Gen X movies.
1: That, to me, would be a product of this film's deep roots in, you know, fanboy culture. Because fundamentally, what this movie is about is doing fan service about the source material. And as far as I can discern, that's all this is. It's been almost three decades since the original Clerks came out. And, you know, these guys are still making references to Conan the Barbarian. There's, you know, some token stuff where they, you know, uh, like they update things to modern sensibilities. Like I mentioned, the NFTs and the wokeness chatter. There's some TikTok humor. Yeah, there's all that stuff. So these guys are on apps and they're, you know, <laughs> they're doing, they have the, the cellular phones. <laughs> but basically, yeah, the whole thing is, is frozen in amber. Like so much so that even the sort of grappling with, you know, uh, what does it all mean? I need to make something out of my life, which is, you know, a very real thought that you can have when you're either entering middle age or, or in the midst of it. Even that just ends up being reproducing the first Clerks film like shot by shot. I also read the Nick Pinkerton review of the movie, and I was struck by, you know, I thought he put this very well. He says, uh, depicting Dante and Randall working over the same pop culture monoliths, like two mangy dogs worrying over an old bone. Clerks 3 is a study in intellectual and emotional malnutrition, a nightmare vision of the inertia and underdevelopment that results with the diminished prospect in many Americans' lives of encountering art of any kind created outside of a corporate context. I think that's absolutely true, And then I think the effect is further diminished by uh, the film not really being interested in taking its characters forward in their lives at all. It's interested in returning to the past, to this nostalgic return to the past one more time. And so in its own way, it is very emblematic of the sort of futurelessness and lack of direction that I think, you know, afflicts a lot of mass culture today precisely because popular culture or or rather mass culture is basically the product of just a handful of corporate monopolies today who've consolidated the entertainment industry so much that they're all just you know uh, monetizing the same scraps of IP.
0: Yeah this sense of arrested development honestly kind of shook me to my core about this movie. It's what makes this movie not merely a run-of-the-mill bad movie but but something else something more dispiriting. Like, if you were pitching the premise of Clerks 3, there's a whole world of missed opportunities here. What would it be like to make Clerks in the year 2022, when this came out? It wouldn't cost $27,000. It might cost $200, honestly. They'd be shooting it on their phones. They'd be dealing with a whole different range of issues than the ones that the Clerks in the first movie dealt with, as well as some of the same issues. Some of that movie is eternal. Or let's say it was these characters making this movie. Like, what would a Clerks made by Clerks in their 50s look like? It wouldn't look like 1994's Clerks. It would look like, well, it would probably look like Clerks 3, I guess. It might be important at this point to establish uh, what are the stakes of Kevin Smith uh, and the clerk's <laughs> mythos, you know, the, the political economy of Kevin Smith. I mean, the reason that he's made it this far, um, it, it's certainly not his uh, visual storytelling.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. So, so sorry to interrupt uh, your, your flow of soul oh, please. just now. This must be addressed. The, the, this film is visually one of the most boring movies I've ever seen. Will and I, as soon as we noticed it, could not shake the fact that every single conversation between two characters is shot in the blandest way possible. Where there's like a camera one, camera two setup, and they just kind of switch back and forth at random. I guess Kevin Smith edits all of his movies. The film's credits uh, impress this upon us from the get go. And let me say, uh, Kevin Smith, if you're listening, you did a really shitty job. Find a real fucking editor. Uh, <laughs> there were so many obvious ways this could have been done better. Like, they're in a convenience store, so why not do it with, like, the security cameras or something? Or even, like, make it completely artificial. Like, why not have, like, weird canted shots from, like, the floor? Or just anything to, like, give you a sense of the space. Instead, everywhere, whether it's the hospital or the video store or the hospital or the video store or the video store uh there's only there's only like the same two angles it's it's awful and it makes what is already not a very interesting movie uh considerably less interesting to look at
0: i mean it's remarkable that this movie which cost i guess at least several million dollars and is his what 14th 15th movie this this man has made studio movies he's he's worked with vilmos zygmunt and this movie looks worse than the movie he made when he was an amateur when he was 22. Uh I mean what what the fuck is going on for God's sake? Uh but anyway, I th- I do think this proud amateurishness is part of the the stakes of Kevin Smith because for For people like me, you know, for teenagers who discovered him, he was a real representation matters figure for, you know, (laughs) pop culture, literate, uh, middle class white boys, you know, (laughs) all of his movies with their sort of loquacious dialogue him, you know, he's a very, uh, a very good speaker. His public speaking, his talk show appearances, his podcasts at this point are as at least important to his brand as the movies that represent the bedrock of it. And you know he's cultivated a sort of persona for himself as a Jersey boy made good who never forgot where he came from.
1: A guy who streams himself soy facing at like superhero movie trailer reactions.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could you could say that. Well, what you just said there though, I think is just like uh, like
1: just like uh, the special features on his movies are just him crying while watching different episodes of WandaVision.
0: (laughs) Well, I think this hints at uh, sort of the sense of betrayal that some of, I mean, that's a grand word, isn't it? Betrayal. (laughs) Betrayal for the guy who made Mallrats. But nevertheless, uh, he was a sort of independent filmmaker. He was in the same kind of brethren, the Sundance brethren, as like Richard Linklater and Quentin Tarantino. Early in his career, he was pitched, I really think, as a sort of like... Gen X Woody Allen type. You know, somebody who made smart, literate movies about adult things like sex and religion and quarter-life malaise, you know, issues like that. You could see him evolving into that, you know, a James L. Brooks or a Woody Allen for Generation X. And now he's a cheerleader for the Marvel Industrial Complex, and as Pinkerton gets at in that essay, uh, has become an increasingly marginal figure as a direct result of that Marvel Industrial Complex
1: complex yeah you know I was struck reading Nick Pinkerton's article which we'd include it in the show notes but I think it is uh, behind a paywall perhaps we can uh, perhaps we can do that anyway it's worth reading as is all of his writing but something that his piece was very useful to me for was just in yeah setting up the kind of stakes of Kevin Smith I mean because I have no relationship to the first clerk's movie I found reading his piece in which he kind of details you know his own experience seeing the movie for the first time his own relationship relationship to it uh you know the other stuff that was in the air of 1994 i mean that was all very useful to me although reading it i did have a very palpable sense of you know golly gee you kind of had to be there and i i kind of i kind of missed the clerk's train and just here for the i'm just here for the fumes and let me tell you they're pretty noxious
0: (laughs) we haven't really got into the other titular clerk Dante. I said that this is a very personal movie, and the two clerks are two different warped self-portraits of their author. Randall, like Kevin Smith, but several decades later, summons within him the energy to harness his malaise into a creative project. Whereas Dante is a nightmare vision of the Kevin Smith who never escaped the convenience store. Fans will recall that in Clerks 2, he was just about to settle down with Rosario Dawson. I repeat, rosario dawson
1: yeah her presence in the movie it was like jarring for a number of reasons i mean among them that i think she's probably like the same age as a lot of the (laughs) men in the film and uh well she doesn't look it i'll put it that way
0: yeah she very kindly appears in a couple of scenes of this one uh, as does ben affleck very briefly by all accounts kevin smith a very nice guy who's a very loyal friend but rosario dawson appears as a ghost because seconds days maybe weeks after the end of Clerks 2, we find out that she and their unborn child died in an auto accident, and Dante has been haunted by this. And so, you know, you're, you're looking at this movie and you're thinking, well, well, what are we, the audience, supposed to get out of this? What's the takeaway that we can use in our lives? Well, it seems he, he's envisioning two different paths that you can take. One is uh, to literally become Kevin Smith, to literally make the movie Clerks under the exact same conditions he made it in 1994. And presumably, uh, as we find out in the closing credits, uh, which Smith himself narrates and sort of explains what happened after, you know, after the curtain fell, become a successful filmmaker. Uh, or the other alternative is to remain impotent at the quick stop and die. That is what happens to Dante at the end of this film. Yeah, he,
1: which way, Western man? He, he dies
0: like i say this movie this movie shook me to my core because like what do you do with that (laughs) i
1: mean (laughs) well you have to become kevin smith i think it's
0: pretty clear (laughs) i i I guess but this is a movie that like presents itself as a sort of like aspirational movie (laughs) that looks like the work of a man i mean good good god like this is a very dark vision for an aspirational movie And the fact that the content, I think, matches the form so well, which is that this is such an impoverished-looking movie. You know, again, a movie that looks worse than the micro-budget first feature. This movie is just, like, profoundly sad.
1: Well, it did get one very genuine laugh out of me, which is uh, near the beginning of the movie when... Which guy, sorry, which main character has the heart attack? Dante? That would be that would be Randall. Sorry, Randall has a heart attack, and then who's the boss at the... Dante. Fucking, Dante uh, calls an ambulance, and he just, he picks up the phone, and he's like, uh, hi, hospital, I need an ambulance at the quick stop. And that got a genuine laugh out of me, because it's like, yeah, hi, hospital, uh, I'm calling from one of the 15,000 convenience stores in western New Jersey. Can you, can you get an ambulance out here right away it's the iconic quick stop from (laughs) clerks (laughs) everyone in New Jersey knows it So if I can just tack on another, like, bit of whining about the movie, something else that really didn't work for me was the fact that, you know, so yeah, the visual style I didn't like, but then also the fact that the emotional range of it is just, the emotional range from it is just this sort of weird (laughs) binary where it, like, snaps back and forth. You know, basically just sort of like, yeah, 1994 Gen X guy potty humor, bants and this like absolutely just saccharine, maudlin, treacly sentimentality, which I initially took as a joke and Will had to correct me and say, no, 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 this is actually like, this is meant to be an affecting scene. Like this <laughs> shitty music you're hearing is actually like, he wants you to weep at this. But, like an example is one of the times Rosario Dawson shows up and he's at her gravesite or something. And it's, you know, this really sad moment. And then she shows up and her ghost starts talking about how, yeah, she's just cheating on him in heaven and she's getting railed by Malcolm X and Frederick Douglass and Miles Davis or something. Like, that's just a scene in the movie. Can we pause
0: on that? There's a scene where Rosario Dawson's ghost tells Dante about having sex with Miles Davis and Malcolm X in heaven. Uh, And then that immediately transitions into uh, poor Brian O'Halloran, you know, like this man... Uh, if you're Brian O'Halloran, stop listening right now, please. Watching him act his guts out in these moments, you know, <laughs> full on Meryl Streep behavior from him. <laughs> there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Kevin Smith is a good friend, but there's also evidence to suggest that he's a bad friend. And I think letting him act so hard in these scenes, it falls into the latter category.
1: Yeah, I don't know. He was trying so hard that I almost found it a uh, sort of endearing, you know, was, he was given it 120%. And uh, I can respect that, which, I can't say about most of the rest of the film, which I mean, just just, just to complain some more. Yeah, the Please. composition is terrible. The tone is terrible. Both of the two tones it has are terrible. The frame rate seems to be off. Like it looks like a sort of bad early two thousands network drama, like you know that really cheap sort of looking frame rate that a soap opera had in the nineties or two thousands. It looks like that.
0: Wasn't the lighting awful? Like the scenes where they're in the hospital, everyone. Is- is so backlit their faces are in shadow in a way that i really don't think is intentional and just like the color palette is just like disgusting
1: yeah everything is just absolutely fluorescent <laughs> and and then and the fluorescence is just like rendered to you with yeah the the most bland composition of shots you can possibly imagine I remember you saying when we were watching it, there's something Lynchian about the emptiness of it all. And, uh, yeah, I really feel that I felt empty watching this movie where grown men talk about Conan, the barbarian and Luke Skywalker in the year of our Lord, 2023. Like, come on.
0: (laughs) I get so fucking stupid emotional for this shit. Little Ant-Man going to save the day. Let's watch that again. Fuck. That was amazing. Um, i gotta figure since like we last saw tony get the shit beat out of him by thanos and all of his nanotech was thanos look Stand on. silent bob with the infinity gauntlet he bought that possible. at tpublic.com if you find this recording uh kevin smith name searches i know that because i found out the hard way one time so he's out there is what i'm saying so i i hope he didn't listen to any of this this is uh this is just uh this is just for us
1: um, yeah, and and tens of thousands of people that listen to this show. I'm sure Kevin Smith is a regular Jacobin listener. I'm sure he catches up on everything on Jacobin Radio, The Dig, Michael and Us, Behind the News. And I'm sure he's going to hear this. In fact, uh, I'm counting on it. Maybe he'll
0: subscribe on Patreon.com, Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Extra episode every week for five, <laughs> for five Yankee dollars a month. That would, that would be nice. Uh, like I say, you know, Kevin, if you're listening, this movie reached me... And I felt it. Um, And that's what art should do. Uh, (laughs) But it might be useful just to close out with kind of reflecting on the trajectory of the Clerks franchise, which is a, a rather grand word for what this is. But nevertheless, there are three movies. You know, the first one was an art house release. It was in theaters the same season that Pulp Fiction was. Did a respectable showing at the box office, of course, became a hit on video. Clerks 2, which was released in 2006, was a wide summer release. It played 2,600 screens or something like this, made about $25 million at the box office. This was when Kevin Smith was one of Miramax and then later the Weinstein Company's signature directors. Since parting ways with Harvey Weinstein in uh, 2008, following the release of Zack and Miri Make a Porno, I think it's fair to say that Kevin Smith has become a more, you know, this is just a fact, he's become a more marginal figure in cinema, uh, to the point where this one, Clerks 3, which, you know, is nothing if not a fans-only proposition. You know, Clerks 2 was marketed to a wide cinema-going audience, but this one was for the fans. It was a Fathom Events screening. I caught it during its week-long run last year at uh, the Young and Dundas. And I'm not sure to what extent that trajectory is a consequence of the atrophying of Kevin Smith's filmmaking skills and ambition. And to what extent it's a result of the sort of Disney, Marvel, Fast and Furious monopolization of movie screens and film culture itself that has occurred in the years since Clerks 2. You know, Kevin Smith making talky, medium-budget comedies for studios that get wide releases is not happening anymore. And in fact, there really aren't any equivalent figures like that anymore. This is something that Pinkerton sort of gets at in his article, the idea that, you know, Smith has been a sort of cheerleader of his own obsolescence. Before we close as patreon subscribers might have guessed one of the catalysts for this episode was we ended our last patreon episode with a reference to you know the famous uh, death star contractors monologue from clerks. Luke, who was not familiar with the scene, uh, was sort of baffled by what a big deal it was at the time. And it was just funny to sort of look back on that scene and think like, yeah, that that hadn't been seen before. That was the same time that, you know, Reservoir Dogs started with Quentin Tarantino and all the guys around the table having that conversation about Madonna's Like a Virgin. You know, Pulp Fiction, the same year as Clerks, had all of those conversations with a lot of pop culture references. Witt Stillman and Noah Baumbach's movies, uh, I think it was kicking and screaming that had that long conversation where they're talking about the Friday the 13th movies... You know, this was novel at the time, and it felt like a sort of continuation or, or an evolution or perhaps a next step. I'm not quite sure what it was, but a next step from the previous generation, the 1970s new Hollywood guys, from Dennis Hopper to Martin Scorsese to Francis Coppola, they all grew up with movies. They had varying relationships with them, but they grew up watching movies on TV and were film literate, and their movies represented that. A lot of their movies were either genre pastiches like Peter Bogdanovich's were or revisionist genre movies like say Sam Peckinpah's were or Scorsese and Coppola doing updated versions of gangster movies. And then this Sundance generation were the children of that generation. They weren't just film literate. They made the references. They made those previous movies and their existence a sort of actual part of the text, a sort of evolution from, you know, modernism to postmodernism. What is Clerks 3, which is all one long reference to Clerks? Uh, (laughs) Post-postmodernism? Post, 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 falling
1: off a cliff. Uh, well, it sucks, whatever it is.
0: <laughs>
1: I won't grow up. I won't grow up. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. Just to learn to be a parrot. Just to learn to be a parrot. And recite a silly rule. And recite a silly rule. If growing up means it would be beneath my dignity to climb a tree. I'll never grow up. Never grow up. Never grow up. Never grow up. Not me.